Did you like that? <laughs> very convicting, by the way, and, and very funny as well. So that's why I put it. Uh, by the way, my name is Pastor David. I am not Pastor Jeremy. So Pastor Jeff did not pray for me, so I'm really in trouble this morning, as you can tell. So, uh, but I'm hoping that Pastor Jeff is sitting there in the, in the back room over there praying for me, even as I preach. By the way, the person on the video was uh, Francis Chan. Uh, and several years ago, he had a crisis in his life. It is not a crisis of faith, but a crisis regarding his ministry, which he has written about and openly shared about. So I'm going to simply let his words, you know, speak to us. So I'm going to read in the first person, I. And here's what it says. I did what everyone expected me to do. I planted a mega church. I wrote a bestseller. I started a Bible college, planted other churches, and spoke at conferences. And here's the crisis. But there was a big problem. I lacked peace. I was frustrated with my own inability to motivate people to structure their lives around disciple-making. I could fill a room and preach a sermon, but I could not figure out how to compel people to leave that room and actually make disciples. I could generate excitement, but not urgency. Then here's his confession. Looking back, I can see now that, that part of the problem was my own example. And I identified with that. I told the people to make disciples while I spent my days dealing with problems and preparing sermons. I wanted the people to share their faith regularly, even though I rarely did. I expected the church to live adventurously while I continued my routine. So Francis Chan resigned from his very successful mega church pastor position and spent time in China and India learning how to make disciples. And here's what he wrote about his experience there. And I quote, Their passion, meaning Indians and Chinese, and commitment reminded me of what I read in the Bible. They displayed New Testament Christianity in the 21st century. They showed how rapidly and effectively the gospel spreads when every believer makes disciples. I'm convinced that their mentality and approach to church could just as transformative in the United States. So having spent some time in India and China, he came back to the United States, nowadays seen in San Francisco, making disciples, 
and planning a church that would make disciples. And he writes, and I quote, This has been one of the best seasons of my life. A church is developing where disciple making is central and unity is natural. We are quickly becoming a family of disciple makers. And then he also shared as he was writing this an interesting uh, uh, insight from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. Many of us have memorized it. It is called the Great Commission. And it will come up on the screen. And here is how it reads. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's the promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here's this insight. He says that the promise to be with us, Jesus' promise to be with us, is directly tied to his command to make disciples. And that was an eye-opener for him. Why he was feeling frustrated. Why he he was not at peace. Because he was not making disciples. So today, if somebody comes over to him and says, Pastor Chan, I don't feel close to Jesus. Usually his first question is this, are you making disciples of Jesus? And then he concludes by saying, experiencing God, which is a longing of every true believer, happens when we are his witnesses and making disciples. So here at Midland Free, we are taking the first steps to becoming a disciple-making church. Such a church would consist of disciples who make disciples, who in turn make disciples, and so on, thus creating a disciple-making movement that multiplies and becomes unstoppable. That's the vision. With that in mind, the elder board recently refined our mission statement to read like this. Make, mature, multiply, disciple makers of Jesus. It used to be disciples of Jesus. Now it is disciple makers of Jesus. In the current sermon series, we are looking at the eight characteristics of such disciple makers. Five weeks ago, we launched a sermon series with the eighth characteristic, namely, disciple makers multiply other disciple makers. We did that because this gave us sort of a destination, if you will. In other words, that's where we are headed, and that's where all of us want to end up, that we all want to end up at disciple makers who multiply disciple makers. Since then, Pastor Jeremy has been describing the steps to get there. For example, a disciple maker is first and foremost a disciple of Jesus. Therefore, their first step is to trust in Christ alone for salvation. 
second, all those who put their trust in Jesus for salvation are immediately and permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, disciple makers must learn to live by the Holy Spirit. Because it is impossible to live a Christian life without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Third, disciple makers obey the word of God. This is what Francis Chan was getting at. You know, it's not about memorizing. It's not about studying. It's not about, it's not about uh, you know, uh, learning. It is also about doing, because that's what the Bible says. Obey the word of God means that we do what the Bible says and not just be hearers only. James chapter 1, verse 22. This morning, we will take up the fourth characteristic, the fourth step in that journey to becoming disciple makers. That is, engage in a local church. In particular, I want to make a case for why disciple makers need to engage in a local church. Why disciple makers need to engage in a local church. And I want to make a case using some metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. So here's the first one. Why disciple makers engage in a local church? Because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Now there are several Bible passages that speak to this particular metaphor. But let's look at just one this morning. And I have chosen... From the second letter to the Corinthians by Apostle Paul. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2. It says, I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as pure virgin to Christ. That is the Apostle Paul says that he brought about the engagement between Christ and the church at Corinth. That it resembles an engagement between a bride and her husband-to-be. And that he is looking forward to the time of Christ's return when the church will be presented to Christ as his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. So here's the question. If that were so, can Christians love Christ and not his bride? Can disciple makers somehow engage with Christ without engaging in his church, his bride? A decade or so ago, several books came out saying that the answer is yes. They like Jesus, but not the church said the title of one book. Very popular book at the time. As a result, many stopped going to church and started the so-called house churches. They met in their living rooms and Starbucks and you know, other places. 
kind of doing church. But the question before us is this. Is it really possible to love Christ and not his bride? It is really possible for disciple makers to engage with Jesus and not with his church, the bride. Now let me ask you a few questions here. What if I were to tell one of you men, I could pick any one of them, man, I love you, but have I ever told you how much I cannot stand your wife? (laughs) Would you take that as a compliment? How about this? Next Sunday, I came over to your home, one of you men, to watch the Super Bowl. And every time your wife came into the room where we were we watching the food, you know, Super Bowl, and oh, she was cheering and said something, I rolled my eyes and sighed. Would you invite me back to your home? Ever. You see, just as it is not possible to be a friend of a man while hating his wife, it is not possible to love Christ without loving his church. Period. David Platt, in his book, Follow Me, writes this. It is impossible to follow Jesus fully without loving his bride selflessly. And it is impossible to think we can enjoy Christ apart from his church. Nevertheless, some people still object, saying that we belong to the universal church. The universal church is what, when, when they became, came to faith in Jesus, they joined all the followers of Christ all over the world and throughout all history. That's the universal church. As a result, they argue that they see no reason to engage in a local church. What would he say to that? I think it's a fair objection. But here's the question that we need to ask. Is that all the Bible teaches? Is that all the Bible teaches? And that leads me to the second point of the sermon on why disciple makers need to engage in a church. That is this. Because the church is both universal and local. Now, Bible scholars tell us that out of the 114 times the word church is mentioned in the New Testament, at least 90 of them refer to specific local gatherings of Christians. David Platt, for example, writes in the book that I quoted earlier, the book of Acts includes the phrase, quote-unquote, the church in Jerusalem. First Corinthian references, quote-unquote, the church of God in Corinth. 
Galatians addresses the church in Galatia. And Paul writes two of his letters to, quote-unquote, the church of the Thessalonians. These demonstrate that all throughout the New Testament, believers were joined together in local churches that are tangible, visible expressions of the universal church. Therefore, any disciple or disciple-maker of Jesus who reads the New Testament should be asking, and here are the questions, to which local church do I belong? If the Apostle Paul were writing a letter to me today, which church would I be associated with as a member? The church is both universal and local. Therefore, disciples and disciple-makers of Jesus need to engage in a local church. Sure, they are part of the universal church, but they need to engage in a local church, his bride. Now to the third reason why disciple-makers need to engage in a local church. Because the church is a family of God. The church is a family of God. Here again there are several Bible passages that speak to this particular metaphor. I want to look at just one this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. It begins this way, through him, referring to Jesus. We, in this context, it refers to Jews and Gentiles. In our context, I want to expand that, even say disciples and disciple makers alike. So through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the God's household. We are members of God's family. Wayne Grudem writes, God is our heavenly father. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14. And we are his sons and daughters. For God says to us, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6.18 we are therefore brothers and sisters with each other in God's family. Matthew chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. First John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. This is a powerful image in that the church is not a collection of people with similar interests. Rather, they are brothers and sisters of the same family, the family of God. Now let's think for a moment about what happens in human families and then try and apply that to the church as a family of God. Now, when children are born, they, they cannot take care of themselves. Right? They, they cannot change their own diapers. So who does it? The parents. In other words, newly born children need their parents and in some cases perhaps their older siblings to care for them. 
In the same way, new disciples, newly born again believers of Jesus need more mature believers to take care of them. Where would you find those people? In the family of God. In the church. As the children grow older, the parents, and perhaps even their older siblings, nurture them and guide them. In the same way, maturing disciples need people who are more mature than them. Such as disciple makers, to nature, nurture and guide them. Where would you find them? In the family of God. In the church. When the children grow to adulthood, the parents become cheerleaders, counselors, advisors. In the same way, the church trains, equips, and cheers on disciple makers to make more disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Now, we are all growing older. It is interesting, and as I was reflecting on this, when you are born for the first time, we cannot take care of ourselves. Right? When you grow older and older and older and we get to a point where we are terminally ill and our days are numbered on this earth, we cannot take care of ourselves. Back the full circle. Now this hit our own home this past year. My mother-in-law, Jim's mother, was diagnosed with a terminal disease. As her health continued to deteriorate, it became increasingly difficult to care for her. So one day when I went home, after work, I found our bedroom door was locked from the inside, and Jem was sitting in her room, in the bedroom by herself. I need to tell you that she had never locked me out of the bedroom. Even the house. So I knocked. She opened the door. So I went in and sat down and asked, what's going on? And she said that her mom was getting on her nerves. You see, Jem's mom in her later days constantly, nonstop, either called Jem to come to her room or came to our bedroom. It didn't matter whether I was there or not. Whenever Jem did not respond. And can you imagine a person calling you nonstop, constantly, over and over again, and you get frustrated and you don't respond, and all of a sudden that person shows up in your room. That's why Jim locked the door. From Jim's mom's point of view, she longed to spend her last days, whatever that was left, with her daughter. Furthermore, he wanted her daughter to be close by just in case something happened to her. That she took her last breath. But from Jen's point of view, she got exhausted, she became tired, and she couldn't care for her anymore. 
So Jim and I sat down and had a long discussion and asked him the question, if he needed to put her mom in a nursing home. By then, Jim's mom had lived with us for 24 years. Our home has always been her home, the only home. She's the only grandma our two daughters have known and loved. No one else. I had lost parents from my side of the family. So as we talked, you know, both of us came to the conclusion, no matter what, we are not going to give up in these last days. We are going to reorganize our lives in such a way that her last days on earth are pleasant and that she would be taken care of. And we wanted her to die in our home and that's what she did. One early morning. You know why I'm saying all of this? Because here at church, sometimes we hurt each other. I have hurt people. Some of you may have hurt me. I have said unkind things. You may have said unkind things. But you know, in the family of God, we do not give up on each other. Instead, we draw strength from each other. We support one another. We cheer one another on. We guide and nurture one another. And where are we going to find all of those, those kinds of people? It's right here in the church, the family of God. David Platt says in the same book that I referenced earlier, it is biblically, spiritually, and practically impossible to be a disciple of Jesus and much less make disciples of Christ apart from total devotion to a local church. Period. Disciple makers engage in a local church because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the family of God. And sometimes we encourage and nurture others. Other times we are encouraged and nurtured by others. That's church. The fourth reason why we engage in a local church is this. Because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Here again, there are several Bible passages that speak to this metaphor. I want to look at two of them this morning. So would you open your Bibles, please? to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you are using the Bible that the church provides, the blue Bible, it's found on page 1219. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, on page 1219. This morning we don't have the time to do an exposition on this. So what I'm going to do is to simply read this passage as well as another one from Ephesians chapter 4 and simply draw some conclusions. That's all I'm going to do. Let's begin with verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 14. 
for the body, human body that is, does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty. Which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. The second passage that I want to read to you is actually Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This passage presents Christ as the head of the church, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here are my conclusions. No exposition this morning. First, Christ is in control of the church. Therefore, if you call Midland free your home, either by being a member or a regular attender, you should know that you are not here by accident. God in a sovereign plan has brought you here because you have a role to play in this church. Therefore, know that you belong in this church and are needed here. Second, everyone's role, whether big or small, is absolutely necessary to the functioning of this church to fulfill God's mission. And we are called to function in a coordinated, united manner to accomplish God's purposes in and through this church. In other words, the metaphor that the church is the body of Christ is a call on Jesus' disciples to belong in a local church, use their God-given gifts and talents there, and unite to accomplish the mission God has given that particular local church. Now, earlier in the sermon, I showed you a circle diagram. And here it is again. And it's going to stay there for a few minutes. As we go through these eight characteristics, here's the ask. 
I would encourage you to examine yourself and see where you might be in this journey to becoming a disciple maker. Perhaps some of you might be unbelievers. If that were the case, your first step is to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Perhaps others of you who are believers may need to grow in the areas of living by the Holy Spirit, obeying the word of God, engaging in the local church and so on. It is also conceivable that some of you might already be disciple makers. If that were the case, then notice the arrow that begins from disciple makers, multiplied disciple makers and all the way in a clockwise fashion. It calls on those who are already disciple makers to shepherd others who might be behind them in their spiritual journey. For example, if you are doing well in any of the eight characteristics, then you can reach out to those who need help and show them how to grow in those areas. By the way, if you look closely at all of these definitions of the eight characteristics, that you will see every one of those concludes by saying, shepherd others to do the same. Shepherd others to do the same. Brothers and sisters at Midland Free, Rob and Jill, would you please stand up? And they are making disciples in Japan, and they are here at the church. Would you welcome them and give them a round of applause? They will be in the lobby area after church, so please go and talk to them and find out exactly what they are doing. But here is what I want us to do. Would you embark on this journey to become a disciple maker? In so, in so doing, would you create a culture of disciple making in this church? Would it be a catalyst to launch a disciple making movement that multiplies and becomes unstoppable and from there it spills into our communities, our region, and around the world. That's what we are praying for in months and years to come. And that's why we have been going through this particular sermon series. The invitation is for all of us to become disciple makers and make this church a disciple making church. Let's pray.